Right now, though, as you've been hearing in the news, the border closure extension, it is continuing at the land border between United, the United States and Canada. The current closure was set to expire tomorrow, but this morning, a spokesperson with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has confirmed with Global News land and ferry crossings will remain closed until at least September 21st. The extension is meant to minimize the spread of COVID-19, including the more contagious Delta variant, and was granted in coordination with public health and medical experts. The land border with Canada has been closed for non-essential travel since March of last year. Although Canada started allowing fully vaccinated Americans in for non-essential purposes as of 11 days ago. Today's decision does not impact air travel. Tina Trojani, Global News. Let's bring in Brian Calder. He is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, great to have you back on the program. Always a pleasure, Jill. Thank you very much. You sent out, uh, I say news release, although it only had three letters on it. It was the latest news release from the chamber saying SOS. So what are your thoughts? I think that kind of sums it up. But what are your thoughts with this news? Well, it's soul and spirit crushing to our business people here. Um, You know, we're all small operators down here. We're not major corporations in any way, shape, or form. And so the people generally run the business and employ people to help them, obviously, in the package business and the restaurants and, and so forth. And, you know, like our Reef Restaurant might have, at this time of the year, under pre-COVID, uh, 15 employees. Now they have three or four, depending on when they're open and what kind of traffic they get. And that is prevalent through all the businesses down here. Uh, so it's economically devastation to us. And we asked for a life vest, and they threw us an anchor. Um, we've got our Governor Inslee got here two months ago immediately because he was on the ground. He saw the devastation here and immediately petitioned the federal government, um, Biden, and said, open Point Roberts on a pilot basis, which we and the fire chief Carlton and I have been pushing for six months, making the argument that we're totally unique. And all the politicians in Washington state agreed. Senator Murray has been a very, very strong advocate for Point Roberts, along with Representative Del Benny has always been a big supporter of Point Roberts. Even though we're so small, they do take care of us as best they can. And they also petitioned the federal government falling on deaf ears. So every politician in Washington state is saying the uniqueness of Point Roberts deserves unique attention. And no one's even listening to them, and they're in the same political party. Good Lord, the Canadian government is doing more for Point Roberts than their own politicians in Washington state. It's, it's ridiculous. Are you surprised, or maybe that's not even the right word, but when the border opened to fully vaccinated Americans, U.S. residents coming into Canada, did that give you some hope that the timeline may have been shortened as far as that being reciprocal? Well, yeah, we figured, okay, you know, Canada's recognizing the science, and they've looked at us at 87% vaccinated, a terrific, probably the best in North America, COVID control uh, situation for 18 months, thanks to Fire Chief Carlton and the members of our society here and our citizens, so 87% of which got vaccinated. I was vaccinated completely back in uh, 
March of, of mid March, and we're, we're very diligent in and when we understand the pitfalls, dangers, and threat of COVID, and we here manage it as best we can, and we're basically an extension of Delta, not not Delta BC, not an extension of of USA Seattle in any way, shape, or form. Our economy, our property ownership. Our water supply, our firefighters, our electric supply, all Canadian-based, not U.S.-based. And yet our own government is so busy worrying about Cuban human rights violations, and here we sit as part of their own structure getting human rights abuses foisted upon us by our own very government unnecessarily. What are things like there? You mentioned one of the businesses that would normally have a, a lot, a, a higher number of employees doesn't. What about the other businesses and the residents? Oh, all, all of the businesses, like your your parcel posts, of which we have six here, um, they would average probably six or seven employees now being run by the owner, the husband and wife team that actually run that business, and the other people are unemployed. And to give you an interest, I, my wife looked on to the U.S. transportation history of vehicle traffic through borders in, in along the 49th, and our own particular border of Boundary Bay Point Roberts in two, 2018 and 2019 had uh, 1.5 million crossings. And you figure that out at, say, everyone spent 10 bucks. That's 15 million bucks. And now we're, we're predicated to get about 100,000 instead of 1.5 million, 100,000. That's the dynamic. And so now our businesses lose two summers, which gets them through. We, we go from 1,000 people here to 5,000 uh, in the spring, late spring, summer, and early fall. And that is enough to carry those businesses through the bleaker months in the winter when we don't have the Canadians as much of the Canadian traffic. And now they've had two summers taken right away from them with no consideration. And it's outrageous. Uh, with the extension now, then until September 21st, at least, uh, I remember talking to you earlier and you said if it went past July, that was going to be absolutely devastating. So what now that it's going into the fall? It, it's lights out. And that's why the SOS, Mayday, Mayday, someone pay attention to this place in the U.S. side. The Canadians have paid some attention, but the irony of that for us here in Point Roberts is it took away what little business we have left. It took a, a further percentage of that away because our local residents here can go into Delta regardless if they're vaccinated or not, which surprises me, but I would I would personally demand they be vaccinated. But notwithstanding, I understand why the people are going uh, in because they've been locked in here for 18 months. I mean, just to get out and see the rest of the world and see what is happening out there. I mean, we go into Delta and it looks like a normal uh, commercial business traffic happening there compared to us where nothing's happening. We, we look at that. We know it's not normal, but we look at that and go, gosh, we, we envy them. We, we'd love to be in that position. And so if they had allowed, uh, through the U.S. government, a reciprocal agreement with Delta and uh, the Canadian property owners who, here, 
who the chief, Fire Chief Carlton, has offered to vaccinate, test, whatever it takes. No, no, not doing that, not allowing it. Why not? Why not? We're following the science, not you. You're doing a one-size-fits-all. And in the case of Point Roberts, one-size-does-not-fit-all. All right. So we're going to leave it there once again. Brian Calder, thanks for your time. And hopefully when we talk to you again, it will be on a more positive note. But thanks for making the time for us today. Thank you, Jill. Always a pleasure. We are continuing to talk about the extension of the land border restrictions. The United States saying they will be extended now at least until September 21st. Joining me is Len Saunders, immigration lawyer with Blaine Immigration. Len, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. What are your thoughts on another extension? I'm not surprised. This has been going on now for a year and a half. Um, It seems like this will never end, especially, well, at least on the American side. I'm very disappointed that the American government has taken no initiatives like the Trudeau government for any sort of exemptions on the land border. It, it's ridiculous. Like, it seems like this will never end. I find it a bit strange. A family member of mine who lives in Toronto a couple of days ago flew to Wisconsin and went said the airport in Toronto was absolute mayhem with people didn't know which papers they needed for testing, which app they needed, and, and what. He got through, no problem, arrived in Wisconsin, did everything right. But it's strange to me that he's able to do that, and anybody really, is any Canadian. He's not American. He's a Canadian. Any Canadian can do that, can fly into the States, but he couldn't have done that had he decided to drive. Well, you know, absolutely. That's what most Canadians find so frustrating. Why can they fly into the U.S. with no restrictions other than a simple COVID test, but they can't drive? It just doesn't make sense. And this has been going on now at the end of this new closure. It's going to be a full year and a half. What is your sense then from what you're hearing and on the ground as far as people that are closer to the border that work in those in those industries so that perhaps even work at the border? What are you hearing as far as the rationale? Well, there seems to be no rationale. That's, you know, it's interesting. Nobody has an explanation of why you can fly, but you can't drive. If it's a science issue, then why are they allowing people to fly into this country? Either open up the land borders like they have the airports, maybe do a COVID test, or you know, have some consistency. And I think a lot of people in Blaine, like I was talking to a couple of the local gas station owners today, I think people have now have, they're, they're content that this is just going to continue for many, many, many more months, maybe until the springtime, and nobody's making any kind of predictions or any kind of plans on a reopening. Um, it's interesting, you do see some more Canadian cars in Blaine, which, you know, until recently, if you saw one a day, I, was, I would be shocked. So I think there's a lot of Americans, like dual citizens, who maybe live in the lower mainland who are driving down here as Americans with no restrictions, driving Canadian cars, and then returning under the new, um, you know, double vaccination, uh, COVID test and all that. But you know, the majority of your travelers who are coming over the border on a daily basis were the, the people coming to get gas, to go to the grocery shopping, to pick up their mail at all the mailbox places. Those are the people who you don't see traveling down. You know, you'll maybe see a few cars in line every day um, at any point, like two or three. You know, whereas in the past, you would see, you know, thousands of cars on any summer day. So it's definitely still very quiet.
Right. And we we did full coverage of when the border opened to vaccinated U.S. residents, U.S. citizens who were coming into Canada. And for any number of reasons, a lot saying they hadn't been to family to see family in a year and a half or just going on vacation. But it did seem bizarre to see that going one way at the border, but not the other. Well, it shows there's a lack of cooperation or coordination between the two governments. I know there's a lot of tension when Trump was president with Trudeau, but now that you have a friendly president to the prime minister, you think that they would pick up the phone just like you're calling me right now and say, hey, let's try to have some sort of joint you know, reopening. There seems to be, it's not a lack of, of cooperation. There's no cooperation. When you see one side going north with a plan, you know, opening up in a phased approach to Canadians with vaccinations and Americans and next month to other foreigners, why can't they do that on this side of the border? It's just, it's bizarre. How has the uh, impact been, or have you been to Peace Arch Park lately as far as what's happening there? Yeah, so I still go there multiple times a day. I've been there twice today. Weekdays are definitely slower. Um, I don't see the crowds of people on weekdays, but weekends, I'm going to say at least 75% of the crowds are still there, so it's still busy. You know, a lot of, well, you know, what's happened, it's interesting, in northern, or at least northern Washington State and Whatcom County, it's very difficult to get a COVID test. If you try to get a COVID test right now to go north as an exempt American citizen, it takes days to get the test unless you're willing to drive south to maybe Skagit or, or, or Snohomish County or even Seattle. So I think a lot of Americans are shying away from coming into Canada because it's hard to get that negative COVID test. So they're still using the park to meet their Canadian spouses, relatives, uh, partners, whoever. I was talking to Brian Calder at the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. He was talking as well about the fact that, yes, it's been opened up for Americans coming into Canada, but that's kind of been a double whammy for them in that people that are still living in Point Roberts can now go to Delta. They can shop and spend their money in Delta. Is that what you're seeing as well? I I know people often encourage Canadian shoppers to spend their money in Canada, but a lot of people when it's possible, do choose to go get gas and groceries in Blaine, in Bellingham. How has the impact been, do you think, on the businesses? Well, definitely the, the mailbox um, stores, the gas stations, the grocery stores closer to the border have been negatively impacted. I don't think anything similar to Point Roberts. And it's interesting you mentioned Point Roberts because I think this whole Canadian reopening is almost the final nail in the coffin for that poor grocery store in Point Roberts because people were forced in the point to shop there. Now they can go up to Canada. So I'll be surprised if you see that grocery store open into the, uh, into the fall. And, it, you know, they're, they're opening the border the wrong way for the people of Point Roberts. People of Point Roberts and Blaine, they want Canadians to enter to spend their money down here. And who knows when that's finally going to change. Maybe Christmas. Who knows? All right, Len, we'll leave it there. But thanks again, as always. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Have a great weekend. Well, earlier today, you may have heard this on the Mike Smith show, there was a debate over what to do in light of the number of attacks involving humans and coyotes in Stanley Park. There is signage in the park. People are advised to be extremely careful if they are in the parts, especially around Prospect Point, although the attacks have been elsewhere. And there have been growing calls for the removal of the coyotes. We have to take more serious action. The fact that 
The Conservation Services have uh, taken out uh, up to six of these coyotes, and the attacks continue, indicate that these coyotes in Stanley Park uh, are habituated to humans. They are willing to attack humans as a possible source of food, and they have to be removed. So that was Bill Thielman. He was in the debate on the side, as you heard there, of removing the coyotes from the park. My next guest is here to talk more about this. Kristen Walker is an assistant professor of teaching in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC and joins me now. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on what we've seen happen, the number of attacks, and what we need to do? Oh, that's a big question. So, um, you know, this is something that, as we've said before, um, the number of attacks is unprecedented, right? So this is something that we have not seen elsewhere. And, you know, it's a tricky situation. This is very complex. Um, The area within Stanley Park and all of the interactions and some of the things that have been uncovered are leading to a very complex set of interactions that, you know, I just heard before, you know, there are different calls or calls being put out there um, to call individuals in the park. And I think if kind of the full story needs to be uncovered within this to truly understand what's happening here. What part of the story do you think we haven't heard or we're not talking about that we need to be? Well, I think part of it is, is that, you know, the scientists and the researchers and everybody involved in this are still uncovering things. And so, you know, this is a very complex, you know, all of the parties that are involved working on this are looking at all the different aspects. So not only what's happening with the coyotes, but what is happening on the ground there? What are the, how are the humans contributing to this problem? Um, Because as we've talked about, we do know that there's some issues with wildlife feeding, and that is most likely contributing to the situation. But there's also some other interactions in the park that are driving this. And, you know, we've we've heard, you know, the show earlier today, you know, talking about this call for a cull of all of the coyotes in the park. And unfortunately, the science is not behind that. So we know when that happens, more individuals are going to move in. Culls do not work. And so unless we take care of the problem, which is, yes, there is a coyote that is biting and that needs to be taken care of. But what I'm talking about is why that coyote is doing that. So we have seen multiple incidents of people in the park hand feeding raccoons. And then those raccoons are becoming aggressive. That it, this is an escalating problem. So it's not just isolated to coyotes. And I think a lot of those issues need to be addressed as a whole. Like there is something systemic that is going on in the park that needs to be addressed. We were talking with somebody from the Stanley Park Ecology Society yesterday. She was saying they've put up trail cams. Unfortunately, they've been vandalized and or stolen. So that uh, the cameras put up to try and study the behavior to figure out if it's one coyote, if it's two coyotes, that was kind of derailed. But she also talked about what you mentioned there, people feeding the coyotes and also concern that it's possible that either from parties on on the beaches or people in the park that coyotes are actually ingesting opioids. Is that something we could be dealing with? Well, so I think a few things there that you just said. Yes, we we have been doing so. I that is my research actually looking with the trail cameras, and so unfortunately, yes, people are vandalizing and removing those cameras. So it's really hindering our understanding of what's going on with that population of coyotes. Um, so that is unfortunate, but we we still are doing after active research there. Um, the idea about we haven't seen people necessarily hand feeding coyotes, but because there's this interaction and we do know that people have been leaving out piles of different food there. 
And that is a, a huge um, concern, right, that they are, that coyotes could be getting that. Um, the ingestion of opioids, so that's something that there's speculation out there on that. I wouldn't say it's necessarily just opioids, but the ingestion of some type of toxin. And so that hopefully will be uncovered when, you know, the government has, they have, um, when the COS came in and they did remove those animals. So those animals always go out for what we call necropsy. And they, so they're trying to understand the general health of that animal. And within that, they're also going to be running different toxicology reports to find out, has the animal ingested something? And that could be a variety of different things, right? So you could have ingestion of something like an opioid. You could also have ingestion of, you know, if the animals are eating rodents and the rodents have gotten into some rodenticide, that might be uncovered as well. And so what's trying to be done is a full investigation to find out, is this due to, you know, um, habituation to humans, or is this actually due to something that is um, erratic behavior by the coyote being caused by even a, a potential health issue? And if we are able to figure that out and the research leads down one of those paths that we get the answers, even though, and I get what you're saying, and and I've heard this from other people, that even if you were to remove all of the coyotes in Stanley Park and in doing so you removed whatever one or two has attacked people, yes, other coyotes Mm -hmm. are going to come into the park. But if we can then change behavior so that people, that the same thing doesn't happen, could that be a solution to the problem? Wouldn't we still have to remove, though, the, the problem coyotes in that park? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem coyote or coyotes do need to be dealt with in, in whatever way that we're talking about, right? And so um, people are going to have different opinions on how that coyote or coyotes are dealt with. And so that's something that is also being left up to um, some of the other organizations involved in this, right? And so need, they want to make sure, I mean, think about that. That is a tough thing to be able to do. How do you target that one or two coyotes? So some of this we're relying upon, you know, when, when, the, when something happens to the member of the public, um, often it's not a great description of the animal, right? And it's not like we have this video or um, uh, photograph at the time that it's happening. And so it's really hard to be able to tell that that is the exact animal that's involved. And so, you know, the conservation officers do have some methods that they're working with um, to be able to hopefully identify that um, particular individual. But yes, if those individuals can be removed, and we still have that issue of if this is due to human feeding, if this is due to something, some other pressure in the park that is causing us not to be able to coexist in the manner with wildlife in there, and I'm not just talking about coyotes, I mean, the raccoons and all of the other animals that are living in there, then those need to be addressed as well. Otherwise, we are going to continue to see this situation. Why do you think we are seeing this focused in Stanley Park and the attacks in Stanley Park where it doesn't seem to be happening, say, on golf courses or in other parks in the city in Metro Vancouver where we see coyotes, but we don't have the attacks? Well, I don't think we have the high number of people that are coming into those areas. And as I said before, we do have an issue with wildlife feeding in the park, and that needs to be enforced. We do have an issue with um, the use of the park. You know, we had uncovered there are large amounts of people that are there after dark. I mean, we've even seen that in some of the news reports coming out. Um, we have seen issues with um, just the way that that park is being used, you know, dogs being off leash in the back on trail, off trail areas, um, and people are living in the park as well. And so all of those together can compound and put pressure on wildlife.
What are your thoughts then on, I mean, is it something where the park needs to be closed for an amount of time? Although enforcement of that, I would imagine, would be a bit of a nightmare. But what do you think needs to be done? Because there's been talk of closing the park. Uh, There's been talk as well of bringing in wildlife proof garbage cans. What do you think we could do in the short term? Well, I think the wildlife-proof garbage cans are something that are going to be eventually implemented, you know, and they have to go through different trials for that, and there's a process for that. It's not as though they can just be popped down and, you know, the problem is solved there because that's one component. Um, closing the park, you know, I mean, we conservation officers have encouraged people to stay away from the park, right? And we still see, I mean, even when we're out there and there's closed off areas of the park with red tape and saying, do not enter, I still see people going past those lines. Um, and that's a problem because it's, it is hindering some of the things that are trying to being, um, be put forward here. Um, and so it's asking people to respect that if there are areas of that park that are closed off, um, to be aware of that. And, you know, I would be encouraging people right now. We do know that, you know, this is happening. And until those specific individuals can be um, targeted, you know, it is, it is a risky situation to be going there. And, you know, we are, we're seeing a lot of these happen around, you know, that 9, 9.30 at night time. Uh, right. Even uh, yesterday, uh, Nadia with the, the Ecology Society, I mean, I shouldn't mm-hmm. laugh, but it's just picturing that she said she herself witnessed a jogger was running along and just hurtled over the sign that said this trail is closed. There's coyotes here. Yeah, I was with her when that happened. Ah. And we just kind of stood there and shook our heads. And it was, yeah, I mean, we see that. And there was a there was a. Also, people in that same area where it says aggressive coyotes and they were having a picnic there with a brand new newborn. Um, It's just not, you know, I don't know if some people aren't getting the message. And so that's something else that we have to think about. So there are a lot of people coming from out of town using the park. And so we need to ensure that those people are getting and hearing the message as well until this can be fully resolved. And it may take some time with that because of the fact that there are so many underlying issues here. This isn't as simple as some of the other incidents that we've seen across Canada where they know it's one individual who's been hand fed that this is a you know aggressive interaction because of that um this is a little bit more complex all right well thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this today Kristen walker great to have you on the program thank you joe All right, I'm continuing to ask a question. It is not the most pressing story of the day. I get that. I got one email saying, why are you talking about this? There are so many other things going on. You should be talking about what's happening in Afghanistan, back to school, other stories. Yes, I know. We have been talking about that as well, and we will continue to talk about that on the program. But I think we can all agree, sometimes we need a little bit of a break from all of the very serious news and things that are going on. It doesn't mean we're ignoring those stories. We just like to lighten things up a little bit, especially on a Friday. So that's why I asked you earlier, being the Jeopardy superfan that I am, who do you think the best choice would be now that the job is open again let me know on the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ or email me there have been some very interesting choices people I never even thought of that uh, people have said hey this person is the person we want so on a much lighter note we're going to share some of those in the final hour of the program today right now though we are shifting back to one of those stories that has been in the news that we are going to continue talking about and talking about vaccinations, particularly when it comes to healthcare workers, there have been a lot of discussions about mandatory vaccination. This was what Dr. Bonnie Henry said about long-term care employees. This was the announcement on August 12th. 
or sorry, yes, August 12th. We are announcing mandatory vaccination as a condition of employment for all workers in seniors in long-term care and seniors assisted living. This will apply to all licensed facilities, whether they are private, health authority owned and operated, or contracted facilities. So that was August 12th, the announcement long-term care facility workers would need to be vaccinated as a term of employment. Well, what about care workers who also deal with very vulnerable residents, ones who are still living in their homes. My next guest has two elderly parents in that situation, people in their 90s living in the home and they receive care at home. Cindy Law joins us now to talk more about this. And Cindy, thank you so much for making some time for us. Thank you for making the time for a voice for the seniors receiving in-home care and their families. Um, yeah, I guess my biggest concern is there's been quite a disparity throughout the pandemic and when they're implementing policies or mandates or safeguards um, to protect seniors um, in long-term care and assisted living care versus those receiving um, care in their own homes. And I don't know if that's because they feel that the seniors living with their families are a bit more protected or secluded, but it's really not the case. Um, you have, um, you know, multiple caregivers uh, entering throughout the week, the home, um, you know, some do the morning care, some do the evening care, uh, you know, the weekends, um, you know, some that want to work weekends, so you get different people coming weekend versus maybe four days during the week. They did, uh, Fraser Health recently work towards having more consistency. At the end of June, um, they implemented some new changes so that there would be more consistency in care, but you still get a lot of people, of course, coming in. And for instance, in care homes, um, you know, they made sure earlier in the pandemic that you didn't have care aides working between two different care homes um, just to uh, reduce the amount of opportunities for transmission and um, reduce the contacts, you know, that those um, care care workers were uh, in contact with less people. Um, But certainly when they're moving from home to home, um, you know, in private homes providing care, it's a less controlled environment. You know, you're entering homes where possibly it's a multi-generational family. They could have young children um, that aren't eligible yet for vaccines and too young. Um, you could have people who are anti-maskers or maybe they do wear masks. Um, you could also have people that have been vaccinated or not vaccinated. So these care workers, you know, move to several homes throughout the day, driving between the homes. And each time they enter home, you know, they're at risk as well as if they do um, inadvertently become infected with COVID, there's a potential to spread it to those seniors that they care for in other homes. Now, they do mask up, but they're not N95 masks and, you know, they're three-layer medical masks and they do their best. Um, You know, I think they're as scared of getting it as giving it to a senior as well. Um, but seniors aren't always masks that they're caring for because sometimes they're bathing them or they're helping them brush their teeth or, you know, that type of care. So, you know, you've got a situation where they're being exposed also to that senior who may wear masks and may or may not wear masks, right? And they think seniors are kind of like confined to their homes and they're um, not really exposed to others. But, you know, you've got people coming into the homes providing um, physiotherapy, Um, You know, you have uh, occupational therapists that come in, you have nurses that come in, you have catheter nurses come in, and then they also have their lab appointments. So seniors, as they get older, they've got hearing issues, heart issues, you know, they go for lab tests, they go to heart clinics, they go to all types of other appointments, eye specialists. So they are getting the same type of exposures as maybe a senior in a care home. Um, The only difference is instead of that care aid going room to room, they're going house to house, uh, the care aids. Um, 
So it kind of it, it upsets me that they aren't given the same prioritization as um, seniors living in assisted living and um, uh, long-term care homes in terms of mandating that the care aides, um, you know, need to be vaccinated. Um, I know they're working on it, but it always seems there's a lag. Mm-hmm. Like when they, um, you know, came out and um, they didn't uh, first prioritize uh, home care aides for the vaccine, but they prioritized people living in assisted living and long-term care. Um, the care aides looking after them for the vaccine. Um, you know, we also, um, uh, the essential visitors, um, you know, were vaccinated um, even before my parents were, you know, getting in-home care. And the other thing, we, we don't get any stats. You know, families have to make a choice and, um, you know, make um, sort of weigh out the risk-benefit analysis of bringing care in when the pandemic gets worse and, and numbers starting to tick up again. And we actually stopped care at one point and we had to base that not on any numbers we were given, but just by the amount of cases, whereas um, families with parents in care are provided with the number of um, cases of care aides being exposed to the virus or outbreaks in homes or, you know, how many seniors have been exposed. But we don't hear that when it comes to in-home care, you know, if there's been any care aides that have been exposed, you know, how they expose seniors unknowingly, um, you know, are there any seniors that have given it to the care aides? Um, so we're kind of running blind and having to make decisions as to whether or not we give up that care and take on, you know, even more work. And <laughs> we're working 24-7, seven days a week, the families that care for their their, uh, their loved ones. And, um, you know, they need that extra help. So it would really help if those stats were sure. And I don't understand, you know, why why they're not. Um, so there's there's been a lot of things um, where you hear a lot in the news about, you know, seniors in care. And I don't know if it in congregate settings, but you don't really hear about, you know, protecting the seniors in their own homes. And there's um, 40,000 people, roughly, that get in-home care in BC from 10,000 community health workers. And so I I really feel um, that the government um, needs to focus on both groups and and kind of prioritize them both at the same level, um, because I feel they've they've kind of missed out on on doing that. And uh, I would like to see... Sorry, you you mentioned that the care workers do wear masks when they come into your home, but I'm guessing, is it uncomfortable or are you you comfortable asking them if they're vaccinated? Um, You know what, they aren't required to tell you if they've been vaccinated. And uh, because I did ask that at the beginning um, when we first reinstated, we actually dropped care in March um, 2020 and then reinstated a couple months ago when um, my sister, the primary caregiver and the co-giver injured herself. And, um, you know, at that time I said, you know, we're concerned because my mom's clinically extremely vulnerable. So is my sister, uh, don't have spleens, so they don't know how well protected they'll be with the vaccine. So I wanted to know when care aides come into the home, you know, are they all vaccinated? And um, I was told, you know, they can't, you know, they're not required to um, be vaccinated. And, you know, they don't have to really tell you. There was one instance where I, I kind of, you know, you kind of ask when they come in, oh, by the way, we've been vaccinated for your protection, you know, and, right. and some of them were more than willing to say they've been vaccinated or even show their card because they know people are leery, right? But one didn't answer, and that's totally her right, you know. She, she didn't have to answer, but I just, you know, kind of, I just kind of asked because I was curious or said I was protected. But then you worry because you don't know, and you're worried about, you know, when they go into homes, from home to home too, um, and they and they enter different homes. It's not like a care home that's got certain air circulation, you know, and air conditioning and protocols in place that if there are little outbreaks and stuff, um, you know. So, you know, they're not as protected either if they're if they're not vaccinated entering different environments, you know, because people 
care for their homes differently. And right. some open the windows, some don't. And, you know, you don't know who you're going to be exposed to in the home if they believe in masks or don't believe in masks. So it's for me, it's, it's a very, it, you know, we're kind of opening the door. It's kind of like we don't bring friends in to our home and haven't since the pandemic started inside the home to protect our parents. And because of the situation, we keep our circle very close and we order things in. And we're doing everything we can to protect. And we, we put masks on to protect the care workers when they come into the home. Um, but, you know, what I'm concerned with is we, as, you know, my parents, it's their home and my sister, there's caregiver. If someone walks through the door, um, you know, they they might not be vaccinated. And, and I kind of feel like we should we should know or have a right. Now, they did say they would do their best to send people that were double vaccinated because of the situation with um, two uh, the household members being clinically extremely vulnerable. But, you know, there's no guarantees and we don't we don't know. Right. And, and I just feel if they're going to mandate it for um, seniors that are, you know, living in assisted living and, and, and care, like why why not, you know, mandate it? at the same time for those receiving in-home care and not just the care aides. You have um, other people that the health authorities send out to the homes for seniors, um, catheter nurses, you know, in-home care and, and um, for, for other things like physio or occupational therapists and that sort of thing. So I think anyone that's dealing with seniors entering their homes, um, uh, you know, who are fully de- uh, dependent on care, uh, should be vaccinated just like in the assisted living and, um, you know, the other long-term care facilities. All right. And well, I just- and I know there are a lot of people that are in similar situations, and that's why we wanted to have you on the program today. Cindy, we'll leave it there, and hopefully there will be an update on this or more clarification in the days to come. But thank you so much for joining us and for, for bringing some more attention to this and, and making this issue. And thank you. And I do hope that we start to see more stats on, you know, with the numbers going up and with the Delta variant variant being more contagious on how many care um, in-home care aid workers um, are, um, you know, potentially have gotten infected or did get infected. And and if there's been any seniors in their care that became infected and either gave it to them or vice versa. I I think we deserve to hear that. And I I wish someone they would have that information because, the health authorities know when they book off if they're sick for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. And they would have to do contact tracing and notification of any homes that those carries have been to. And possibly it's really low, but we don't know. So we have to make a choice if the numbers continue to tick up. Do we want to still bring care into our home? What is the risk? And we have nothing to evaluate that on.